The reality is by putting the thought and the effort into this contract, what you include in it, spelling everything out for your clients is that they take you more seriously. Now, they can still stiff you and not pay, but they take you more seriously. And by presenting yourself this way as a business, as a freelancer who knows what they're doing, as someone who has structure, as someone who has everything organized and spelled out, you're presenting an image to them that they're much less likely to try to take advantage of. Welcome to the Live, Work, Travel podcast. I'm your host, Michonne Thomas, a former middle school teacher who quit at 30 to become a six-figure freelancer and digital nomad instead. You're in the right place if you're ready to learn how freelancing can help you to work from anywhere, make great money, and live a life that you design. I'm sharing everything I've learned to get to where I am today in order to support you on your journey because this lifestyle is simply too good not to share. Today, we're talking about freelance contracts and why you need one with your client. So talking about a freelance contract may seem boring, but it is absolutely necessary because most of the time when I see freelancers get themselves into trouble with a client and with not getting paid, it is because they didn't put a contract in the first place and they sort of didn't specify the right things in that contract, okay? You might think that, oh, now that you're freelancing, you don't have to do so much with you know boring paperwork and you've got all this freedom now, but you really do want to organize yourself to make sure that you get the basics done in order to protect yourself. There are clients out there who unfortunately take advantage of freelancers. They take the work that they provide and basically just screw them over. Okay, According to an article, it was a study done by PayPal and mentioned in Forbes, over 58% of freelancers have experienced not getting paid. Okay. That is a staggering number. And I don't want you to be a part of that group. Knock on wood, but fortunately I have never experienced that in my life. Not even come close really. And I credit that with having things spelled out from day one, making sure everything is clear, organized, agreed upon before starting work. So in order to make sure that you don't get taken advantage of it, basically there's a couple things that you need to think about. One, the contract should clearly spell out as much as possible of the working agreement so that everybody's clear and everybody's on the same page. Two, you definitely want to lay out your payment dates and what happens if payments aren't made on time. Basically, you stop working. I've seen too many people continue to work on good faith and then the client just never pays. Do not turn over work without getting paid. And there's a couple ways to do this, like working in sections, phases, where you're making sure that you're getting paid along the way towards something being completed, not just getting the whole chunk at the end. That's not acceptable because they could choose not to pay and you've still done all that work. And then the third thing is, this is where I think I've been most successful, is seeking out high quality clients from the beginning, going after the type of people who aren't going to screw you because they aren't that kind of person, taking the time and effort to do that upfront. So in talking about contracts, we want to talk about what's the point? Why do you have one? So you have pitched a client, You've sent over a proposal to them, kind of spelling things out. The final step before you start working with them is to send them an actual contract. This is something you both agree upon. They can ask for changes if they would like, and they sign that before you start working for them. Okay. The primary purpose of this is just to organize the working arrangement in writing. It's super important to have in writing because otherwise in a disagreement, if it comes down to, you know, he said, she said, you know, he said, he said, all that kind of stuff, it could be a disaster. You want it in writing, you want it agreed upon, you want it signed as well. That just adds another layer of, look, 
This is a legal agreement that we spelled out together and agreed upon. You want it to be legit, okay? Now, technically, anything put in writing can be an agreement. You could agree over this stuff in email. You can write an agreement on a napkin and have that be a binding agreement. I find it simplest to put it all in one place in a contract because it's just everybody knows where it is, what to look back on. If there is a disagreement, it's all spelled out in one place, right? You don't want to have to go back through your emails in a messy, you know, 47 email chain trying to figure out what was agreed upon and when and where and all that, right? The other reason I like to put it in its own separate place versus email is imagine that you guys did end up going to court over something and they need to drag through all of your emails trying to figure out what was said, when and where, and maybe you have to turn over all that stuff. You just don't want that. You want it in its own separate place, okay? So when I first started out, I tried taking a contract I found on the internet and modifying it and sending it over to a client. And one of my earliest clients, it was so great because he was just like looked at it and his brain exploded as it rightfully should, because these things are written in so much junk, right? This legalese, this chaotic, ridiculous language, the wherefores, you know, just crazy stuff that nobody talks like that. So he said, hey, can you just put this in plain English? (laughs) And I said, yes. Awesome. And ever since then, I've never used a fancy contract with anyone else. I use basic contracts. They're written in plain English. They spell out to the best of my ability what the agreement is, what the understandings are. And, you know, at the end of the day, am I leaving myself exposed? Possibly. But the same could be said for a contract that I'm sending them with a bunch of legal junk terms that I don't even understand, right? So instead, I try to hit these seven important things. I do it in plain English and we both understand each other. So number one, the services that are included in the freelance contract. Legitimately, what are you doing for the client? Be as specific as possible. Are you creating four social media posts per month? Are you creating 16 social media posts per month? Are they reels? Are they carousels? Are they static posts? Are they stories? You want to spell out specifically what has been agreed upon. Now, this is not something you necessarily want to bring up in your pitch because I get annoyed when people send me a pitch of, I will create X things for you for X price when they haven't even gotten on the phone with me yet. We haven't talked about what I actually need. But this is over here. Once you've done the the pitch, once you've gotten on the phone, Zoom, you've chatted with the client, you've agreed to put something together specifically for them. This is where you put those exact details in writing. You're creating stuff for their Instagram or you're creating stuff for Facebook. You're creating stuff. Is it written content that you're creating? Is it imagery that you're creating? Creating stuff for their Instagram page is going to be very different from ghostwriting funny tweets for their Twitter account, right? Like getting specific about what you're doing. This is the place that it goes into the freelance contract. And this is important because later on, if they try to add other stuff that they want you to do, you can make modifications to the contract. Because it's like, hey, this wasn't spelled out in the initial part. I'm happy to do this for you. I've created an addendum to the contract. Here's that. And you can go from there, right? So many people have this issue of, oh my gosh, the client keeps asking for more and more and more and more and they're asking for all these things and it wasn't in our initial agreement and I don't know how to say no. Well, when you've got a contract, when everything is spelled out nice and clear, it's easy to say no because you're just saying, oh, it wasn't here. Let's add it now later. And then you're off to the races. The next thing you want to include is the term length of the contract. So how long is the contract good for? This will depend a lot of times. I encourage my students to get ongoing work with clients whenever possible. So the contract then can be ongoing, right? But if you're doing something that's a specific project, a specific length of time, you definitely want to include that so that you have things in place. You know, let's say you're doing something for three months for a client. 
that needs to be specified out in the contract. And you need to know as well, you know, if it's ongoing, how do you end it? Who cancels it? Who has the right to cancel it? How much time do they need to give notice? Is it written notice? How much do they have to pay? Let's say if they're ending the contract out of the blue and you've been working for them on an ongoing basis, what do they owe? When do they owe that? And what happens with that last bit of work that was done? Different things like that. Just having a specific term like the contract and having, you know, hey, I need written notice 14 days in advance, written notice 30 days in advance, you know, whatever it is, spelling it out in the term lengths is going to be good for both of you. Each person knows how to get out of this contract and they know how long it's good for. You can also use this to talk about how long in advance they need to notify you if they want to renew. Let's say that you have a clause in there. You've been working with a client for six months and you have a clause in there that, hey, I need 30 days notice that you don't want to use my services anymore. That way you can plan accordingly to go out and get new clients to fill your schedule in the event that that client is leaving. If they say, hey, you know, I'm not going to need you beyond June. Cool. You know that you're already able to go out and look for other clients to replace that. The third thing you want to include is any important due dates. This is so important when you're getting started with a new client because it takes away any guesswork and it gives you both clarity. It provides just a sense of calm and consistency that this is going to be due on this date, this will be due on the other date, whether it's stuff that they need to provide you in order to do your work well, or when you're going to have stuff over to them. Being able to say, I'm providing you with 16 social media posts by the 15th of the month. You'll need to get those back to me by the 20th of the month with any edits needed, and I'll have you final ones by the 25th of the month. You know, just simple things like that allows you to structure your day. It allows you to structure your week, your month, It gives the client a sense of calm of like, okay, I don't have to think about this person all the time. I just know that I'm expecting to see this on this date. And that just frees them up and they can trust you to do what you do and go off and do what they do. The key here is to stick to those, of course, because if you miss those, if you don't show up, if you don't deliver on time, it just creates this massive mess of you know, lack of trust and all that. But getting organized from the very beginning, again, one of the best contractors I've ever worked with, she was doing a several month long project, but she had all of her reporting dates laid out when she was going to have what to us. And she did it. She showed up every single time. It was the most wonderful experience I've ever had working with somebody because as a client, I felt like I didn't have to lift a finger. She was just over there working, doing her thing. And then when it was time to give a report on something, update on progress, it was there in my inbox before I even realized that it was the date that it was due type thing. You know, So specifying out those dates lets both people really just feel comfortable in the working relationship. Number four, the next thing you want to include in your contract is client obligations. What does the client owe as a part of this working relationship? Are they supposed to give you weekly feedback? What happens if the feedback is late? Does it hold up your ability to do your work? And then what happens then in that case? Do they need to add you to stuff in order for you to be able to get started? Do they need to add you to their WordPress blog or Google Analytics? Do you need access to the company Slack account? Do you need a company email? Do you need access to their Facebook page? All of these different things, whatever you can identify that you'll need access to and spell out in the contract gives you a fallback when they ask if something isn't done on time. You know, you can point to the contract and say, hey, I spelled this out here. I said that I needed access by this date. You read the contract, you signed it. I needed access on the 5th of the month. I didn't receive access till the 15th of the month. And that's why everything else is late by 10 days because I didn't have that time to get started. You want to minimize the ability for somebody to just like lose their shit and blow up at you. It's not personal, right? It's just like, here's the day that I got access to this stuff. This is why everything else is late because of this original thing that then, you know, snowball rolling down a hill 
it then caused all of these other secondary things to happen because we didn't start at the time that we agreed upon to start. Simplicity, just having that in there, it usually diffuses a lot of situations where instead of turning into a blame game, it's just facts, facts that are laid out. Both people read the contract, both people signed off. Fifth thing you want to include is compensation. So straight up in plain English, simple terms, how much are you getting paid for the work? When is the payment due? Any payment structures that you are laying out specific to your project? 50% up front, 50% on completion, maybe. If it's a project, that's a common one. If it's a long-term project with different phases, you might split it up with, you're starting with this amount and then you get paid this percentage on each completion of the phase. If you are doing hourly work for the client, when are you invoicing them? When is the payment due? The first, the fifth, weekly. I had one client who, this is back when I was working hourly, but he loved to pay up front for some reason. So at the beginning of each week, he would pay me for the 10 hours of that week. That's very unusual. <laughs> Most people kind of like a standard kind of job. They want to pay after the work has been completed, but you're spelling all of that out in your contract and leaving no room for debate. The next thing you want to address in the contract, number six, is confidentiality. A lot of clients have concerns about their confidential information getting out, especially if there is, you know, kind of a trade secrets type thing going on. If they're worried about someone else being able to copy what they do in their business, they will understandably worry about confidentiality. Now, this is where the legalese gets super, super weird, right? Because if you've ever worked for a company where you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement, you know, half the time as a lay person, you have no idea what you're signing. It's so complex and written in just the goofiest language, right? So what I will do, and we'll talk about this more at the end, because there is one really important thing that you need to know. But what I will do is put this in as, again, as plain English language as possible, basically just spelling out, look, I'm going to treat your information like my information. I'm not going to disclose this to anybody else. I'm not going to work with direct competitors. If I even see a possibility of a conflict, I will talk with you about that. You know, I feel like your existing clients should be able to dictate more than a potential client. So I give my existing clients that respect of going and saying, hey, I'm working with you. I have the opportunity to work with this person. Do you see a conflict here? And I will let them decide that obviously up into a reasonable amount. And I'll speak up. I once had two clients that I was working for, completely separate I had found them each, pitched them each, everything separate. It did the work at separate times even. But then when I was with one client, they knew each other and they had the opportunity to work together. And I said, hey, look, I have worked with this client in the past. Do you see that as a conflict? You know, obviously I'm going to treat both of you guys 100% separately, but I want you to know this. I want you to be honest. And it turns out in that case, it wasn't an issue. We didn't have the same businesses enough, but I did disclose that to my clients because it's like not in the business of hiding shit. And that's why to me, just a confidentiality clause in plain English is so good. It's so simple. It's just straightforward. It's just so much this just comes down to being a good person. Just be honest. Treat people like you would want to be treated. And for me, that means not disclosing shit about my clients to other people, not talking about their business in any identifiable way. Of course, we all go out and have some drinks with friends and we talk about stuff. But as long as it's sort of this general area, you're not disclosing. It's like when you go and bitch about your boss at happy hour, right? Like, Your friends don't exactly know who they are or necessarily like all the details of the stuff, but we all blow off some steam, but it's just doing it in a way that's professional and confidential and you're not ever sharing trade secrets, anything that you wouldn't want shared about yourself, basically, is how I treat it. 
Finally, we get to number seven, and this has to do with payments as well, but this is late fees. What is going to happen if a client is not paying you or is paying you late? Okay. And I have been fortunate that I have never experienced a client falling behind. And I do have a clause that clearly spells out what will happen if that happens, right? So it's fair to include late fees. You're a person, you've got bills, you've got responsibilities, you need to get paid on time so that you can take care of the things in your life. And if a client's not paying on time, there should be consequences. Going back to the reason so many people take a while maybe to wrap their head around the idea of freelancing is because we're used to the stability of a W-2 job where that paycheck arrives every two weeks or you know, on the 1st and the 15th on time. We can depend on it. And I think the same thing should happen in freelancing. When I've seen it not happen for people is when they don't have boundaries set up front. They don't have things clearly spelled out and they're not prepared to stop working or follow up with the client in order to get paid according to the terms of the contract. The only thing I would say about late fees is to make them reasonable. I have seen some freelancers send me some ridiculous contracts that have like exorbitant late fees charged. Like if it's five days after the due date, the late fee is 20%. It's just like, get out of town. What are you talking about? Like, I'm not paying you one fifth the price of the entire invoice because it was five days late. That's insane, right? So you want to agree on those terms in the beginning and just spell them out. And by giving the client the possibility to look over that contract and you both agree on the contract, you can do with some fiddling here, right? And it depends on like the bigger the company, the bigger the amount of work done, the more expensive, you know, of course, then you can afford to charge more. But so many things in business function on like a 30-day net payment. Businesses are used to having these larger windows of payment, especially for larger contracts, high-priced things that it's exorbitant to charge a bunch for, you know, a five-day late payment or things like that. It depends on what you're doing. Again, it comes all down to what you're doing, how important you are to the client's business, different things like that. This person that tried to charge that was a like a social media freelancer or something. And I just laughed. I was just like, get out of here. Like, come on, that's just ridiculous to charge that much for such a short window. I do encourage you to think about what's fair Think about how you can get what you want. Because at the end of the day, if the client just stiffs you and doesn't pay, you're screwed. You're really screwed. So you don't want to do things that are antagonistic, like 20% late fee for five days late. You want to think about it and structure it in a way that is most likely to get you paid. So maybe starting with a rolling fee of like, okay, at five days late, it's I charge this much extra, 10 days late, et cetera, and so forth. And you want to do your best to get paid. And there's lots of things that you can do aside from specifying the contract, but then just touching base with them, trying to figure out what's going on, what's happened. The most important thing you can do is stop working when you're not getting paid. Most of the time when I see people asking questions in the forum on a client job that went bad and they didn't get paid for, what they did was they kept working beyond where they should have said, hey, look, I can't work anymore until I get payment on this. So there are ways that you can do your part to ensure that you get paid without having super, super aggressive late fees. Okay. And so now we're going to talk about the final thing. One of the very important things that I want you to know as a freelancer, this came from one of my early clients as well. He had been in a business partnership where his partner ended up being just kind of dead weight and wasn't contributing to the business. And they had a contract, but the partner was being really stubborn about digging in his heels and just like he didn't want to get pushed out of the business, even though he knew he wasn't a good fit and he wasn't contributing. And so my client told me this. He said, a contract is only as useful as how much money you've got in your pockets. Because if you can't afford to go to court or mediation to go after the other person, then at the end of the day, it's just a piece of paper. So why am I telling you this after telling you all these things that you need in your contract? 
because I want you to know the truth. This is a reality for most freelancers that most of us don't have the money to go and litigate a client if they screw us over. So why would you bother to have a contract in the first place, right? That sounds a bit contradictory. The reality is by putting the thought and the effort into this contract, what you include in it, spelling everything out for your clients is that they take you more seriously. Now, they can still stiff you and not pay, but they take you more seriously. And by presenting yourself this way as a business, as a freelancer who knows what they're doing, as someone who has structure, as someone who has everything organized and spelled out, you're presenting an image to them that they're much less likely to try to take advantage of. Every time I see issues with clients and freelancers, there is usually a boundary issue. And a contract is a firm boundary. Even if you know that you can't go to court and litigate it, you're showing up and saying, these are my boundaries. And you're going to hold yourself to those boundaries as well. You're going to make sure that you stop working if you're not getting paid. You do put the late fee on there if they're not paying you in time, that if they ask for extra work, you go back to the contract and say, hey, this is what we had spelled out. I'm going to add this other thing in here. Like It's just a confidence boost for yourself. Again, it comes back to what I mentioned in the beginning. The biggest thing that you could do to protect yourself is choosing the right people. And we pretty much know, we all have that intuition, that gut check that says, this person's going to be trouble. (laughs) I can already, I'm getting some red flags. Like we can see the red flags, right? Whether you choose to ignore them, now that's up to you. That's not going to save you. No contract is going to save you. But I just wanted you to be aware of this. The contract is not the end all be all. It's not perfect. It's not save the day. And yeah, if you can't go to court after somebody, then it's not going to be much help. But I think it does help you in the mindset and getting you into the way that you approach your business, the way that you set up your business, the way that you go out and find a business and the rules that you hold yourself to and your clients to. This is where taking the time to sit down, to work through, to develop that contract really does come in handy and really will pay off. All right. So that is all for today's episode. If you are interested in checking out a sample client contract that I use in my business, you can go to resources.liveworktravel.com. And on that page, you will see the sample client contract available that you can purchase and edit and use in your own business with your own clients. I've provided both the template for you to use and then an example of how I've got it filled out and structured for a client. So hopefully that will help. If you have questions, you can get a hold of me at hello at liveworktravel.com via email. And you can just always send me a DM on Instagram as well. I'm at liveworktravelig. Thank you so much for listening. I hope all of this was helpful and I will be back next week with another episode. <music>